0: welcome to the reach the stars podcast a collection of conversations with cool people who do cool things brought to you by papercraft miracles each week we'll bring you inspiring stories of persistence passion and purpose with your host jonna willoughby moore
1: Welcome to the Reach the Start podcast. I'm your host, Jana Willoughby Lore, and today my guest is Donovan King. He is an anti-oppression activist from Montreal and he is also the founder of the Infringement Festival. As a whole, not just in Montreal, but because of their festival in Montreal, there are Infringement Festivals in cities all over the world. He is also an actor, a teacher, and a cultural worker and many other things. He's super dope and I'm really excited to have you here. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Jenna. It's great to be here.
1: Long time no see. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) So usually, for those who don't know, the Infringement Festival um, is... I'm going to let him tell you the exact definition. But to me, the Infringement Festival is this wonderful celebration of of all the different varieties of art forms with uh, no corporate agenda where the proceeds all go toward every single artist who performs in the festival. And it is amazing. And it is one of my favorite times of the year. We have had one in Buffalo. I think this is our 16th year of doing it, maybe even 17, like a lot of years since 2004. Um, The only year we didn't have a printed program and an in-person festival or anything was last year, but was all virtual. And it is just amazing. And I just have to thank you for making the Friendship Festival happen in the first place, um, because it is just something near and dear to my heart and every almost every year that we have had our festival, Donovan has come to Buffalo um, for at least a good part of the festival, if not all of it and um did shows and went to other people's shows and was just this amazing cheerleader and proponent of the arts and educator and just super super fun but alas the covid has made it so that you cannot come here for infringement this year but hopefully next year um but it's really special to me to be able to still see you during infringement or right before infringement anyway so yay Do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about you and your story, where you come from, (laughs) how you got there? Sure.
2: Uh, So I'm a Montrealer and, uh, you know, I helped uh, found the Fringe Festival here in Montreal back uh, way back in the early 1990s. And then it got co-opted by corporate interests. And so that's why uh, I founded the Infringement Festival to bring it back to its roots. Uh, Nowadays, the word fringe is actually trademarked uh, across Canada and in other places around the world. There's something called the World Fringe Congress, whereby they're trying to corporatize all of the fringe festivals in the world. And so uh, what I decided to do is just bring it back to its roots. And of course, uh, it's a play on words. The infringement is sort of a trademark infringement on the trademark word fringe. (laughs) So it's it's such a pleasure to go to Buffalo where uh, the real fringe exists or the infringement. I mean, that's what it felt like uh, when it was first created in Edinburgh in the 1940s. It was a rebellious bunch of artists opposing a, a corporate entity, the Edinburgh International Festival, that wouldn't let them play there. And so we're continuing this long tradition of cultural resistance. And honestly, uh, since the um, fringe got trademarked in Montreal, I, like I don't even go there anymore. It's not the same type of experience. It's named after, uh, you know, a beer company, for example. When you go there, you're surrounded by corporate logos, security guards. Um, <clears throat> You know, censorship and these types of things. Whereas when you go to the Buffalo infringement, none of that exists. It's it's hard to imagine that any of that would be there. And so it's it's really a pure artistic space. Uh it's called the, a TAS or a temporary autonomous zone whereby you can completely overthrow uh, the corporate culture within a space. <coughs> for a couple of weeks. And so it's it really is, uh, in my opinion, the best artistic space in the world. And that's why I love going there.
1: It's uh, it's just it's the most magical time of the year. Um, (laughs) And I, I think my favorite thing about the Infringement Festival is that every single person who applies and puts in some effort to make the festival happen can have a show. So you will have seasoned musicians who've played hundreds and hundreds of shows sharing a stage with a kid who is still in high school and it's his first show ever. And I just love that, like that collision of experience and um, like that, that whole, I don't know, melding of of the worlds happens just for the the sake of the way the festival is designed. It's just amazing.
2: Yeah, and like, where else can you find that? You know, it doesn't exist anywhere else. And that's why it's so magical and
1: special. It's really awesome. So I am curious what your experience was when you were first helping to found like the Fringe Festival. And like when, when I think people who have no experience with either Fringe Festivals or infringement, when you're like, it was co-opted by corporate sponsors, can you tell the story of like how your, how your show ended up evolving into the need for an infringement festival?
2: Yeah, so when we first started the Fringe, there was a real need for artists to just do their own thing in a uh, city that was kind of, um, you know, culturally stratified. So if you wanted a job as an actor, you had to audition at only one of two theaters. And, you know, if you're lucky, you might get a job every couple of years. And so uh, with The the Fringe, you could do a show every year and not just one show, but seven shows and put out your talent and put out your creativity and, and kind of change the paradigm. And so it was a super exciting time uh, when we founded it. Uh, I was just out of theater school, so I was looking for opportunities. And it was a really wonderful space, you know. Uh, there, 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 wasn't, uh, you know, the types of things we see today, like the security team or the gaslighting of artists who don't want to pay to play, or uh, you know, the corporate uh, sponsorships everywhere. And so it, it was the type of pure artistic space that that we wanted. And then uh, I went overseas for about four years in my early twenties, and when I when I came back. Here's this festival that we had created that was now called the St. Amboise Fringe Festival, which is a beer company. And it had also acquired a trademark somehow, uh, you know, while I was away. So it wasn't the same thing at all. And uh, when we applied uh, to play there, you know, all of a sudden we had to pay very hefty fees, fees. Uh, you know, we had to be associated with these corporate sponsors, including the corporate media, I might add, that we weren't comfortable with. And so we created the show called Car Stories that was designed to disrupt the entire system. And of course it did. It got kicked out of the Fringe Festival uh, after we offended a corporate sponsor, which was also the corporate media. And so uh, the following year, we created the infringement uh, to, to try to bring it back to its roots. And, uh, you know, this caused a big cultural uproar in the city, uh, something that's still going on to this very day.
0: So,
1: um, when you first started the infringement festival, how many acts did you get in it? And like, what was the range of type of shows that people kind of guerrilla did? And was it, was it scheduled at the same exact time as the French festival?
2: Yes, it was. Uh, it's always been scheduled at the exact same time as the Fringe Festival. And so we had probably about 30 or 40 acts the first year that we did it. And this covered a range of everything from theatre to dance to uh, spoken word, poetry, culture jamming, uh, visual arts. Uh, so it's always been a very open sort of festival. And uh, it's it started that way and it, it, it did um, Contain all of those elements uh, for its duration. It ended about five, uh, four or five years ago, and we've since gone underground uh, to do other infringement projects um, that are kind of uh, shaking up the whole municipal politics of the city at the moment. As a matter of fact,
1: that's awesome. <laughs> Actually, making literal change with uh, with your art, which is so cool.
2: Yeah, I just got a call the other day from, uh, like, we're having a municipal election, and one of the candidates is known as the Canadian Obama. Uh, his name is Balarama Holness, and he's, uh, you know, demanding, you know, better culture, more social housing, you know, more parks, you know, just generally... He wants to put people first instead of political agendas first. And for for his team to call me to ask me advice on their policy, I was I was floored. I was like, wow, that's amazing to think that we've made an impact to the point where mayoral candidates are phoning us to talk about politics.
1: It's, it's so wild that like we live in, the, in a society where it's like it's such a weird thing to ask artists what they think.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah. And in the past, we've, we've never been asked what we think, you know, every time we step up to say something, you know, we get gaslit, we get excluded, we're called crazy or whatever, just mm-hmm. because we don't follow this corporate agenda. And, you know, as times are changing, as we move into, um, you know these crazy times of climate change and just like cultural concentration, monoculture, uh, you know, insane politics. You know, people want change, and and all of a sudden, certain people are turning around and saying, "Well, wait a minute, these guys have been saying this for decades." You know, maybe we should ask them what they think. And so, uh, to me, that's a, a shock, <laughs> but a good shock. You know?
1: Yeah, um, and it's funny because I've noticed that. You know, in this age of social media, yes. So all the major social media companies are big, huge corporate conglomerates. It's not all really what we want to be uh, using as our main tool of communication. However, um, because of social media and the ability for anybody to create an audience and gather a lot of people together and share whatever content they want, um, it's Become sort of like this virtual infringement festival for a lot of people that gives people an outlet where they never would have had one, you know, gives them a stage to sing a song or do a show or share poems or artwork and things like that. And it's become so powerful where social media can easily take down a huge company if they fuck up and do something publicly shitty and they're going to get called out on it. And I think it's just... I think it's really interesting that something that is so built in the corporate environment um, is kind of (laughs) sneaks in the back like that to be able to to give power to so many people who would normally not have voices at all.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating paradigm. I mean, especially during the pandemic, we saw so many people going online to express themselves in whatever different way, which was great. But at the same time, you know, that comes with the advertising of the corporations like Google and Facebook and whatever else. And so, uh, you know, until someone creates a virtual uh, type of infringement without that corporate interference, uh, the best we hope for is to go to somewhere like Buffalo live on the ground where none of that exists. And that's like, as I mentioned, that's kind of a pure space uh, that's not... Uh, compromised or co-opted in any way. And again, that's why I love it so much.
1: Yeah, it's the very first year that there was an infringement festival in Buffalo was two thousand four. And uh, to give everybody a little bit of background, this guy named Kurt Schneiderman was in Montreal either the year or maybe two years before this. It and, was Toronto
2: actually, or
1: Toronto, but he saw an infringement festival. In Canada. And he's like, what is this? This is the coolest thing. We need to do this in Buffalo. So he came back to Buffalo and he got a couple of people together, a handful of other organizers. They made a paper program, like a trifold photocopied um, application. And people had to fill out this paper application and then like hand it to these people. Um, And I think the first year we did it, we had like 50 acts. I heard about it randomly at some open mic and I said, what? And I could do a show every day (laughs) for 11
0: days.
1: (laughs) How how are we going to do this 11 day art festival? This is crazy. Um, And so we had 50 acts and I think there was like 10 or 11 venues across, mainly through the Allentown area, but across the city. And they put it together with a budget of no dollars. (laughs) just somebody got photocopies at work and they just made it happen and I don't even think they had anything different than just regular photocopied programs they didn't have anything big it just was kind of like a list of where everything was happening and they had a website and for me I just graduated college and had just come back to Buffalo and was trying to get any type of fan base for my music and my art so To have graduated in may and come back and find out about this festival like a couple of weeks later and then all of a sudden i'm immersed you know end of july in 11 days of the wildest craziest artists i have ever seen in my life and i was like my people like (laughs) how did i find you all it was just so magical and because it had never been done in buffalo before and there were so the venues that they picked aside from there was like a couple of bars and a couple of art galleries but there was all these weird venues like the back room of a bookstore or like an alley in between two buildings
0: and like
1: they made venues out of places where people wouldn't normally encounter art especially not subversive weird art and at the time like George W Bush was the president like A lot of people were protesting the Iraq War and our idiotic involvement in it. And it was still a really scary time to even start to be an activist and to say, hey, what we're doing isn't right. And a lot of people were getting called out as un-American if you didn't think that the way that they were attacking other countries because of 9-11 if you didn't think that the way they were going about that was right then you were un-American and it was you know 9-11 happened while I was in college and so to like have the world change so drastically right at the same time I was becoming an adult was so wild and it was really inspired a lot of, uh, my MC Vendetta-ness. So for those of you who don't know, you probably who listen to this probably do know, but, um, my rap star alter ego is MC Vendetta. And, um, I was very inspired to write lots of stick it to the man, um, talking shit about the government, (laughs) calling out the wrong policies that were being made, um, live on stage as often as possible. And, um, I got called un-American a lot and I, it was difficult for me to go and play shows and regular bars and things like that with people who were like, what the hell is this? I came here to forget the world sucks. Why are you reminding me? <laughs> and so to have this festival just pop up, um, and not only was it just, just so much fun and so magical to see all these people just making art all over the place. Um, but to have the type of art that I was doing, which had come across like so much resistance from, you know, the normal people. Right. Um, so <laughs> all of a sudden, like I was booked to play on like in a parking lot every single day for 11 days in a row for two hours. <laughs> and I did two hours worth of screaming my heart out, political slam poetry, acapella on the corner for two hours every single night and every single night the crowd that came to see me got bigger even if it was people who had seen the scene before and there were people who had never seen me who went and got friends out of the bar and pulled people out of the bar into the street and saying check this out something is happening out here and some of those people still come to see me now and it was way back in 2004. So yeah. I, think, I, think yeah, I, I
2: totally loved like, your uh, shows. I mean, I still do, of course, but I'll never forget that first infringement to see this young lady come uh, out on the stage and just just ripping it, you know, with the spoken <laughs> word. And, and one of your songs, I'll never forget. You were saying how you want to move to Canada, <laughs> which, which I thought was hilarious, you know. And uh, but but yeah, you really like embodied that spirit of infringement as did like everyone else. And that's the amazing thing about it. It's non-hierarchical. Anyone can do what they want. It always has sort of an edginess to it for the most part. And um, yeah, those were, were fun days. Like when we met Kurt Schneiderman in Toronto, he had signed up for the fringe and he had had to pay like God knows how much money and and his mistake was he was doing virtual breath which is a very activist type of theater and and the fringe had been so co-opted that like Starbucks was the sponsor of it and uh, you know people wanted to see a one-man Star Wars show uh, and not like a, a very hardy uh, Birchall Brecht and so he had no audience uh, really And that, and then he saw us doing the infringement and he said you know we need something like this in Buffalo but the, the, there's a trademark on the fringe in New York State And so I said, well, why don't you do the infringement? And he was like, well, what, how how does it work? How much does it cost? I'm like, it's free. (laughs) You know, this (laughs) is like, this is the whole origins of this movement, you know? And so, um, you know, he took the idea and he started it and we joined him. And honestly, I've been going every year that I can over the last 15, 16 years You know, sometimes I can't because of, uh, you know, work or the border being closed or COVID or whatever. But uh, I think next year for sure, I'll be back. I mean, I was just there two years ago. I had such a great time. Uh, Some of my friends set up a sort of uh, tent type of shelter in the backyard (laughs) and sleep in this kind of uh, open air area. It was really fun. And, you know, there's partying every night and shows all the time. And uh, I just love it. I mean, I honestly, I prefer the art scene in Buffalo to here in Montreal, like easily a hundredfold. The art scene in Buffalo is,
1: is, it's so old, like you know, the arts here have been something that has always been here. And even when all the manufacturing jobs left and the city got like really run down and and nobody wanted to come here and nobody wanted to live here and everyone was moving away, like the arts community here was always still thriving and impressive. And we have one of the biggest, most beautiful art galleries in North America here. Um, Several of them actually. And like all of our old school architecture and all these, these aspects that like bring, I don't know, that kind of old school art scene uh, here. Um, And I know that there were, there were a lot of beat poets who like to come and perform in Buffalo. And it's like, it's always kind of had that, that underground artist colony about it, uh, which I really love. And I think infringement, it just, found its little home here. And after that first year, it started to grow exponentially. So the second year that they did it, we had, I think there was 150 acts and like 50 venues. So it was like triple the size. It was still totally put on entirely by volunteers. Nobody got paid except for the artists who charged for their own show. It's free for everyone to apply. Everyone that applies gets in. Um, And the organizers all work together to find venues that will donate their space to have weird art happen there. And then the organizers pair the artists with the spaces that are available and make sure that everybody has a show. And then they somehow managed to put it all into this online database and turn it into a printed program. And it continued to grow every single year that we did it. um, It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I mean, the year 2019 pre COVID, I mean, we had 16 full pages of a big newspaper was the program for 11 days. I mean, there were 800 shows over 800 shows in 11 days. And we had over a hundred venues across the city and all still put together starting with a budget of no dollars. And we would do Kickstarters and we would have fundraiser concerts and, and raise money and, and, so many artists would donate their time and their talents to play at these fundraiser concerts to raise money, to make the festival happen. And, and I think it's great that the artists keep all the proceeds from their shows, but so many of the artists are just so happy to be able to perform somewhere for people who give a shit um, Uh that a lot of them are just like, Oh, well, I'm going to take the money I make from this show and I'm going to donate it to the artists that are traveling here to be in this festival who like don't live here, or I'm going to donate this money to the homeless shelter on the corner and make sure they've got enough food to feed people. And it's just so amazing to to see all these broke ass artists like come together and pool whatever money they make to continue to make wonderful things happen. And it's it's weird because I, I just finished the program for this year. Festival starts tomorrow. The show is going to come out after this the festival starts but the festival will be going on while this show um, is out. So if you are local to Buffalo, make sure you go to infringebuffalo.org and check out the schedule or hop down to Nietzsche's and get yourself a printed schedule. But I just finished it and the festival has definitely gotten smaller again after COVID. I wouldn't say that it's like, it's not as small as it was when it started, but I think there's only maybe four or five literary acts. There's maybe like seven or eight theater acts. It's like, it's just much smaller. There's still a lot of bands, but um, I think it's going to be nice to kind of get back to the roots where you there's only so much audience built into the show. Um, and it's going to be really nice to be able to actually catch a lot of the shows <laughs> because we you know when it got so huge. You'd say, Oh man, look at this schedule. I want to go see all of these shows. And you just can't, you can't, you had to really be picky and choosy and say, Oh, well, if I want to see this one, then I got to skip this one on this way, but I could catch it again on that day and like figure out your whole plan. Um, and then somehow find some food to eat in between running back and forth <laughs> across the city to go see all these shows. It's it's just magical. And I'm so grateful for you for coming up with the idea of it and having a part in bringing it here. And I'm, I'm going to miss our stories this year. I hope it comes back next year.
2: Yeah, we'll do it next year. And I'm super grateful at how far you've taken this. I mean, it's incredible in Montreal, we did it for about 15 years, and eventually it became unsustainable due to you know things like uh, you know rapid gentrification, the loss of small venues, you know the fact that people needed to work more to uh, just pay their bills, you know, and that that's what happens sometimes in a city uh, where it rapidly uh, gentrifies, you know. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, we had the same type of vibe of Buffalo uh, when it started. You know, tons of cheap places to live, you know, uh, lots of great uh, abandoned spaces for venues, you know, and that was, I think, one of the factors why infringement works so well in Buffalo was, you know, it being a Rust Belt city, you would have a lot of these spaces uh, that you could get to use on the cheap, you know, uh, or for free or whatever, and uh, you know, it, when that sort of hyper inflates, it, it becomes more and more difficult to get the venues for the people to have the time to volunteer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, uh, you know, that's that's something that's always a worry, of course, and uh, I really hope Buffalo can resist that because I've seen it you know, gentrify over the years that I've gone. You know, I mean, a lot of the acts had to empty out from Allentown, for example, because, you know, they had to move Rust Belt books or, uh, you know, whatever the case might be. You know, the artists couldn't afford to live there anymore. They'd move to a different neighborhood. And so um, I think it's amazing that you're still doing this in such a, a passionate way and keeping it to its roots. I mean, congratulations.
0: It it
1: truly is an amazing feat to be able to I mean, for anyone out there who's ever volunteered on committees. Right. Um, so to be able to get a whole bunch of artists who normally are like crazy, scatterbrained, typical ADHD people, <laughs> get a whole group of them together and just have there really isn't a hierarchy like there is no head of the festival. There's the person who's in charge of getting musical acts and scheduling them. So like each genre kind of has a person. Um, and then there's usually who's somebody who's in charge of doing PR and there's somebody who's in charge of finding venues and there's somebody else that's pretty good at handling the money. Um, and the first couple of years, it was maybe about five people and all five of those people did about 10 different jobs. Um, but now that it's such a big project, like the list of of volunteer organizers is pretty hefty at this point, which is great. Um, and we have successfully had like turnover of the people who were originally doing all the music and scheduling those things. We've got a lot of new. New energetic people to kind of head up, making sure that that happens, um, and bringing more new people. And as new people come in and they hear about it, they say, "Oh, I want to be part of this. I want to see, you know, what I can make happen in my city." And it has just been so beautiful to to see it evolve. And there has obviously been lots of gentrification in Buffalo. We did lose a lot of our really, you know, like the first couple years of the festival that strip between. Um, Nietzsche's and Jim's Stakeout on Allen. It was just packed with these little teeny venues um, where all this magical stuff would happen, like Space 224 and the College Street Gallery and Rust Belt Books. And like there was just all of those little, little spaces where whatever could happen because it wasn't already a bar and it was just a space for art to occur. And We had, we lost most of those venues. Rust Belt Books is still around, but it's in a different location. So I think the festival has spread out a lot. So it's not as centrally located. It's not as walkable as it used to be. Um, But there's these kind of little pockets so there is still a pocket of venues in that Elmwood Allentown area. But there's also little pockets of venues down on Grant Street. And then there's you know, like it's kind of expanded into the neighborhoods where the artists had to move, where they couldn't afford to live in Allentown in the Elmwood Village anymore. And now they have started their own underground venues on the east side. And it just there are a lot more cool little spaces owned by independent creatives than I think there's ever been in Buffalo now. And they're all kind of willing to say, yeah, if somebody could come and do something here. um, And I'm just so excited to kind of see it start to get back to that and to see the festival really kind of hone in on the people who really want it. You know, because it, when it did get real big, there was a lot of artists who heard about it, signed up and didn't realize that there was some kind of volunteer commitment involved, that they had to kind of help make it happen. And you would get your show scheduled, but you had to promote them. You had to make your own flyers. You had to tell people when the show was. You had to get people to come. And I think there were a lot of people who didn't understand that that was required. Like that's part of the reason that it's free because they don't have all these corporate sponsors advertising all the shows and, and doing that kind of stuff. So like you're, you gotta be your own corporate sponsor sort of and
0: promote <laughs>
1: the hell out of your show and, and make flyers and and go to other people's shows and tell them about your event. That's going to be down the block in an hour. Come on guys. And, like go get your audience and bring them there. And I think it's getting we'll see what happens starting, starting tomorrow. But I think it's getting kind of back to that roots, like roots of that. There's a lot more young people who are involved in it now. Um, and I could just see so many young artists having the same experience that I did like 15 years ago to so be like, Oh, my people, you
0: know, <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: like coming across art in a way that they never thought they would. And it's amazing. It's amazing. It's like the, my most favorite thing I've ever been involved
2: in. <laughs> yeah, it's super empowering, you know, because, uh, you know, where else can a young artist get an opportunity to just jump into something like this, you know, and, uh, you know, be part of a community, see solidarity and, uh, you know, do the self promotion. And it's all like the original fringe was, you know, I mean, it was people sharing ideas and supporting one another but uh, you know, I mean, I went to the Edinburgh Fringe uh, when I was invited to the World Fringe Congress, and I saw their system. And like, they have to pay like thousands of dollars uh, to just be listed in a program, and hence, like, you know, almost nobody goes to most of these shows. You know, the only ones uh, that they attend are the ones that that have that corporate sponsorship, that buzz, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really not the same thing at all. There's no vibe of solidarity. It's rather a vibe of competition and desperation. And that wasn't the purpose of the festival in the first place. The purpose was to protest corporate bullshit and to do it yourself. And so uh, I love the fact that the infringement has stuck to those ethos going back to the original fringe.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've obviously we, in order to put together this festival, we start with a budget of no dollars. But we do, you know, sometimes there are local businesses who say, I want to buy an ad or I would like to donate to make this happen. Um, and it's not like they don't accept any money from anybody to make the festival happen. But the main thing that's in there's this infringement mandate. And you can go online, look it up. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. But um, part of the infringement mandate is that that you're not allowed to have any corporate sponsors who can dictate content or say who can be in or who can't be in the show and what you can say or do in your show. And so it's just so cool to have these local businesses who are still willing to, like, put their money in it and put their name on the program, even if somebody might be talking about some crazy shit. And they're like, <laughs> right, I just like seeing it happen and being a part of it. And I think that's I think that's wonderful. You know, we're never going to have Pepsi as a sponsor and good.
2: (laughs) Good. (laughs) It's
1: good. Um, And man, I'm just so excited to have like our post-COVID infringement reunion in general, because it's like last year was so hard for so many artists and so many musicians who couldn't gig at all and had no income whatsoever. And because they'd been gig artists couldn't get a lot of unemployment. Cause that's, I don't know how it was working in Canada, but you know, if, if you didn't have a paying job on the books before, then you weren't getting unemployment now. And there were so many artists I knew who would play a show live on Facebook and just post their Venmo name and get donations from people to help pay their bills, and mm-hmm. so I'm really happy that we can have infringement again and finally have that outlet for all of our musician friends who couldn't do anything and all our artists who had nowhere to show their art and all the theaters that had to close and it's just oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be it's going to be a good eleven days. I think people are going to be really happy and excited and. I think that there's going to be a lot of people who had gotten kind of, they were like, Oh, I'm kind of over it. I've seen the infringement thing or whatever. And I think there's going to be a lot of new people who kind of get up and get out of their houses and realize how nice and important it is to have somewhere to go. (laughs) (laughs) Something cool to see there. You know, I'm super excited for our, I think it's our 15th annual lawn disco coming up this Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) um so for anyone who doesn't know my band bloodthirsty vegans has played on the porch of one of our um housing co-ops uh on the corner of elmwood and north since the summer of 2008 and we played every single summer except last summer and i'm super super excited to uh be rocking the porch again and (laughs) i wish you could be there well maybe we'll see if we can live stream it so you can
0: watch
2: Yeah, well, I'll definitely be there in spirit. But yeah, if you can live stream it, I'll be tuning in if I'm free. I mean, I loved uh, old Wonder Moths, like this artistic vibe. Not only would it put up artists to stay in the old mansion, but it would have shows on the porch and different events all the time. I mean, what an amazing space.
1: It is. It is. And they have fruit trees in the front yard. So you can like go see a show and then like eat apples. (laughs) (laughs) it's so nice that's it's my it's hands down that's my favorite show to do every year And because it's so accessible to so many people, it's just right out on the street corner. Anybody who wants to come to the show can come. You know, we pass the hat to, you know, try and cover the babysitters at this point. Um, But it's just it's so fun. Just there's you see people who drive around the block like five times just because they want to see it because they can't find anywhere to park. But they'll keep going around the blocks like and watch the show for two minutes at a time at the red light. Then there, you know, there's people who are just out in the city who had no idea what the Infringement Festival is at all, and because there's the show right on that corner, kind of in the middle of everything in the city, they just happen upon it. And I think that that is my favorite aspect about Infringement is that it puts art in front of people who would normally never go out of their way to see art, and. You know, there's people who are just taking the bus to work who get a nice little soundtrack while they're waiting and, you know, homeless guys pushing cans, you know, carts full of cans who stop and hang out and jam out and and people give them cans and give them money and give them food. And it's it's just beautiful. It is just beautiful to see humanity actually coming together and enjoying something together and feeling good about something that can make change. It's it's wonderful. Oh Oh, man. I want you to talk about your show car stories a little bit. It's fun.
2: Okay. So car stories is, uh, you know, the show that got kicked out of the fringe festival here in Montreal. And uh, essentially what it is, is, uh, it involves three elements, cars, stories, and people. And, uh, you know, usually we assemble a team of people, we decide on a theme and then we create, uh, you know, stories that play out within vehicles. And so traditionally it was like two actors in the front seat, three audience in the back seat, and they would uh, also be led from car to car by theatrical guides. Uh, But in Buffalo, because of high demand, sometimes we might have 10 people on the show and they're peeking through the windows uh, with with three of them in the back seat or whatever, and so it's, it's such a fun show because it creates a um, a sort of temporary reality of sorts, you know. Mm-hmm. And- don't really know uh, that there is a show happening unless they're in it. And so if you're a spectator or a spect actor, as we call them, because they do participate in the show, if they're passing down the street, uh, there's a lot of pedestrians who are unaware that this is actually a show and who might think that it's real. And just one of my favorite examples from Buffalo is one year we were playing on the theme of gentrification, and so I was playing this real estate agent leading the uh, spectators down um, uh, Elm Street. And I was pointing at these homes saying how we're going to demolish all of this to build these condominium towers. Now, the people in the homes who m- might have been sitting on their porch thought that this was real and so they ran out to oppose it you know and uh, as the real estate agent i'm like oh you ain't got any choice here you know this is the 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 future you know you're gonna be bought out within two years and and so it created this this whole crazy vibe that's half real and half theatrical but at the same time is throwing out all of these memes about gentrification. And, and that's the fun thing about car stories. I mean, we've had the police come uh, uh, to the scene because they thought it was like a real criminal activity when in fact it was just a performance, you know. We've had so many of these issues over the years where it just causes this kind of ontological explosion to happen. Uh, and to me, that's a super exciting artistic space to be in. Uh, you know, it's not something that's prescribed, like in the theater with the proscenium and the spectators and the actors, but it's it's rather a free-for-all that's happening right on the streets. They, they can have all sorts of crazy uh, reactions or reflections.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's probably my favorite show I've ever created, uh, in terms of, you know, the artistic value of it. Um, of course, it's not going to pay the bills, you know, if you only have three uh, spectators at a time. But it, it's it's just such a great artistic experiment. And um, that's why I really love it. And, uh, you know, who knows, one day in the future, maybe we could have a whole Car Stories Festival with, like, hundreds of cars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? <laughs>
1: It it is such a fun show because every single time you run it, it's different because it totally depends on who's there watching it because they're not just watching it. They interact with the actors and their experience can change the whole direction of what happens in, in the performance. And it's beyond improv because You know, if you're doing improv, it's really only based on the actors who are playing with each other. But because there's always different audience members plus the public who happens upon it, it's just, you never know what might happen. Yeah. And it's just so much fun. It is so much fun. Oh, I shared a picture of the brick the other day. It was really special.
2: <laughs> the pee break.
1: <laughs> so before we run out of time, at the end of all of my episodes, I ask all the guests the same five questions because I love hearing how different people answer the same questions in different ways.
2: Okay. I'm all ears. Uh,
1: I got to get my list. You'd think after as many episodes as I've done, I would remember what the five questions are, but I uh, have ADHD and I forget them. Um, so yeah, five question time. Do, do, do All right. Question number one, tell me about a single experience or moment that shaped who you are today.
2: Okay, so when I was in high school, I was kind of a a troubled teen, I guess you could say. And then uh, in grade 10, I was taken under the wing of the drama teacher, Louise Chalmers. And she taught me not only uh, how to act, but also how to be a teacher. And so in grade 11, I was her assistant teacher. Uh, Today, these are my main jobs. I'm pushing 50 And to think that someone had the ability to influence kind of a lost teenager and put them on a full career track uh, within the span of two years is amazing. And I'll forever be indebted to her because she really set my life uh, on the track that it is now. And it's been a very uh, satisfying life and and a successful life in a lot of ways, too. So I I have to give her all the credit.
1: That's awesome. I love hearing stories like that. All right, number two, when you feel defeated or overcome, which as an activist happens a lot, what do you tell yourself to keep going?
2: (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, I tell myself that, you know, the society is changing and it is changing for the better. And, you know, things that um, might be considered adversity today uh, could easily be... Uh, resolved in the future, and you know I've seen this many times. You know, for example, at the University of Calgary, when I was there, you know, I was censored, I was blocked uh, from communicating. Uh, the the work was seen as uh, too activist. I was put on a, a, a probation, etc. And th- this was like 20 years ago. Today, the University of Calgary, in their alumni uh, newsletter, calls me a thought leader. And a success, and blah, 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 blah. And so things do change uh, over time. And I think they they change, especially in the era we're in, as you mentioned, with things like social media. You know, there's whole paradigm shifts happening now uh, that will eventually, um, you know, dissolve these past oppressions. We see these statues being toppled uh, across Canada and the United States, you know, because they're oppressive as hell. These were slave owners and genocidists. And, you know, why did they stand there for 150 years and nobody complained? I don't know, but now we're ripping them down. And so that's changed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. In so many ways. Things are changing like that too. I mean, even just in the past couple of days. I mean, I'm going to be like dating this episode here, but um, in the past couple of days, there's one of our American Olympians, Simone Biles.
2: Yeah, stepped
1: back from competition because she's like, I'm not mentally in a good space to do this, and I care more about myself and my well-being and the well-being of the people who I'm competing with. That I don't care about the medal. I'm going to take care of myself, and it's. I don't think anyone has ever done that publicly like that. And it's just, you know, to make it be something that previously she I mean, I'm sure that there's still idiots out there who are trying to shame her for doing that. But that the vast majority of the news that's coming out about that is like, look at this wonderful woman who's making steps to take care of herself mentally and that like taking care of your mental health is becoming a cool thing now. Right. <laughs> and like, hopefully it's not the type of thing in the future that people are like, Oh, I had to go to therapy, you know, that everyone's like, Oh, I went to therapy and I feel so much better. And now I'm not exactly, else, yeah, you know? yeah. like I just, you know, and, and just seeing how many, Of the women's teams are pushing back against the sexist outfits and things like that that you're just like i don't care if you kick me out i this is wrong and i'm sick of it and i think that's you know just being able to be outspoken about that and having claps heard around the world is so freaking cool it is really it's a scary as hell time to be alive with climate change and covid and all of this crazy shit happening in the world but there are so many other amazing things for change, like big, big things for change that have happened in the last five years that whew, gives me goosebumps, like thinking about what the world ethically might be like for my kids. Just
0: yeah.
1: So, so different. Anyway, number three, um, tell me about a way that you overcame a failure or a mistake and what you learned from it.
2: Wow. you got some good questions, Jenna. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Okay, well, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Like, I run a business called Haunted Montreal, and so like the goal of the business is to um, pay actors union-based wages, but while at the same time embedding activist messages into the stories, even though it's kind of a standard tourist uh, offering. Uh, but one mistake I made was I got a business partner who ended up defrauding the company of a whole year of money. You know. And um, that was devastating, you know, because it meant that I had to, uh, you know, lay off some actors, I didn't have a budget for marketing or anything like that. And, and this was right before COVID, so we got doubly whammied by it. Uh, so I saw this kind of as a failure in my own, um, you know, uh, business acumen. In all fairness, I had been suffering from a major depression. And this is why I took on the partner. I just wasn't up to doing all this stuff, you know, but, you know, I guess I learned that, um, you know, in, in a future event of something like that happening, you know, just like the Olympian, I'll just step back and say, you know what, the business doesn't have to run until I feel better, you know? And, uh, also, uh, of course, not to let anyone else touch the bank accounts in the future.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Or having some really good contracts and paperwork in place before that happens. <laughs> oh man, it, it is definitely a tricky thing to kind of have a business get bigger than you can do by yourself and then figuring out how you, how and who you can trust to help you.
2: Oh yeah, I had a that burnout because it just got so huge, and this was way before you know, Eventbrite where you could just cancel like a whole season with the press of a button. I mean, if I had a problem, I would have to email and refund like 50 people with not enough hours in the day. You know, it was crazy. And, you know, I guess another lesson I learned is, uh, you know, you have to do self-care, you know, you can't let things get that out of control. And, uh, you know, it's more important to take care of yourself than it is uh, to make business, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly. People over profits. It's like the heart (laughs) of infringement. People over profits. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Number four. What one trait or habit is most responsible for keeping you on track?
2: Um, I'd have to say creativity is probably the the most uh, influential trait. I mean, I have a list of like 50 things I want to accomplish. And, you know, every year I accomplish one or two more or three or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I've got so many things that I want to do uh, and it just pushes me to do them. You know, I mean, years ago, I never thought I would be a business owner. And then I said, well, you know, why not do a small course in business, you know? And so I did it and I learned enough about it to start and then like, well, why not get a business coach, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And so I've been doing business for 10 years now, but it started with baby steps and now I'm thinking, okay, I want to learn how to do pu- uh, self-publishing. You know, I want to learn how to do video editing uh, and so on and so forth. So these are all on my list of things that hopefully I'll do eventually. But it's, it's that creative drive to just want to do more and more and more that really keeps me going. Same. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, Jill of all trades over here. Um. <laughs> It's been crazy finally making a name for myself as, you know, the lady that makes all the paper,
0: (laughs) Um, you
1: know, after having that be my my dream since I was 19 years old. Like, that's what I I went to college to be an artist who makes money because I didn't want to be a starving artist. And Focusing on making paper and I had the same name for the business and had a business plan and all that stuff. And just like, did it really slowly. Like, just like you said, like baby steps, like one little thing at a time added a craft show, added a consignment shop, did this start, did somebody else's wedding and a little bit at a time. And, um, it's, it is so worth doing. If there's, if you have that list of like, Oh, I really want to do these someday. Like, don't wait till someday because life is freaking short y'all life is short and you know if you don't do it now and you wait till you're retired or you have more time or you have more energy or this or that before you even start to do the things you really love you might not ever get to do any of them
2: exactly yeah you know put aside at least a little bit of time you know uh to do those dreams you know Uh, even if you don't get there like you're at least you're on a path right and It was like, for example, I used to teach uh, tons of drama, but I never had a teaching license. And I thought, well, you know, if I got the license, It would make, you know, things a lot easier in terms of salary and stability and whatever. And I was in my mid 30s. I actually had to go back to university for four years in my mid 30s to get this license, you know, and I did. And now, you know, it's great. I've got this wonderful full time teaching gig. I'm at the top of the scale. I'm the union rep. I'm a governor at the school. You know, but if I had never taken that step to just do it, you know, I'd still be like teaching two hours here, three hours there with no job security, no pension or nothing. And so, you know, you have to decide what to do and then go for it if you can, you know, or at least put aside a bit of time to to pursue it.
1: Exactly. And don't ever be afraid that you think it's too late to start change in your life to do something that makes you happy. You know, like even if it's one hour a week, 10 minutes a week, just do something that makes you really happy. Because I think, I think in general that if everyone in the world had at least some meaningful work that made them feel good, that's something that really made them feel happy and it felt like they had a purpose in the world. We could get rid of all those trolls on Facebook if they had something they really love to do during the day. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's just there's so many people who don't have meaningful work. It means that they don't have hope for the future, they don't have hope that things could be better. And because of it, they tend to spend their whole day dragging down anybody who does have happiness in their life, who does have a purpose, who does have dreams. And, you know, it's always those people who come out of the woodwork to be like, your dream is stupid, <laughs> you know, and like make you feel shitty about it. And then <laughs> what are they doing all day long that makes a difference in the world? Nothing, you know,
2: and exactly.
1: I just, I don't know. It, it made me feel so good earlier this year. My company had this huge job, and I got to bring on. I had almost seventy staff members throughout wow. the, of the job. I had set like seventy people on my payroll, and after six weeks of doing this job, I had paid out over a hundred thousand dollars in salary.
2: Nice.
1: And just to be like to know that something that's my my dream that I have wanted to do forever to be able to have meaningful work and to use my creativity as my career. To have it become something that also employs other artists so that they get to do something and they get to wake up in the morning and say, I get to go to my job today. It's going to be really fun. I'm going to get to do something new and cool and exciting today. Like, what else is there? Like, seriously, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) oh, it's the greatest thing ever. It's the greatest Next to infringement. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Number five. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten and what advice
0: would you give other people?
2: Wow. Another very good question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I guess the the best piece of advice I, I got was from that drama teacher when I was in high school and she just basically told me uh, to pursue uh, my dreams essentially and um, it's something I've been doing ever since. I know it's a bit of a cliche piece of advice, but it's uh, a good one. Uh, but what what advice I would give to someone isn't quite the same. I would say, um, you know, as an anti-oppression activist, challenge oppression is my best piece of advice to anyone because... You know, the world we live in is changing fast, and now we got to strike while the iron's hot. Uh, and and if we don't, you know, it's it could be catastrophic. You know, with the climate change, you know, we're seeing so much destruction, wildfires, flooding, tornadoes, ice ice melt, etc. You know, we don't know how much longer we're going to be here at this rate. And so, uh, and it's not just climate change; it's it's an all Areas of society, the the types of oppression based on race, gender, age, ability, um, class, whatever. It's time to try to break down all of this systemic discrimination and racism. Uh, And so, you know, challenge oppression, do it now. Uh, Because if we don't, uh, you know, I think we're kind of doomed to, uh, repeat a lot of the history of the past. And so I think that's my best piece of advice to give to someone is just challenge it. Even if, you know, you don't win at first, you know, at least you're, you're breaking away at something that's, uh, terrible.
1: Oh, that's the best advice ever to end the infringement episode. <laughs> challenge depression, do it. Oh, thank you so much for being here on the show. Can you tell everyone where they can find you online?
2: Yes. So uh, if you want to do a haunted tour in Montreal or read our free blogs, it's hauntedmontreal.com. Or if you just want to get a hold of me, it's Donovan King on Facebook. Just shoot me a message and uh, we'll chat, no problem.
1: I love it. I love it. I love this show. And I'm super excited for the 2021 Infringement Festival in Buffalo to start tomorrow. If you are listening to this show, Um, Anytime before August 8th, 2021, the festival will be going on in Buffalo. If you haven't ever heard about it, now you know. And you should go get a program and go check out some shows and come see my band on Saturday. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you so much for hanging out with us on the Reach the Stars podcast. I have been your host, John Willoughby-Lore. My guest, Donovan King. Amazing, amazing activist who has been kicking ass, taking names and making change for a really long time. I'm so glad to have gotten to talk to you today.
2: Thank you so much for having
1: me. We will see you next week on the reach the stars podcast. Bye everybody. A single interaction has the power to change your life forever. This is a place for the stories of those moments, stories of pursuing dreams, overcoming tragedy and failure of coming back to life after so much of what feels like dying of continuing on with only a vision as a map. This is the place where those moments live on. Come sit by the fire, look up at the stars, and be forever changed too.
0: Thank you for being with us on the Reach the Stars podcast. Our theme music is generously provided by Byro Craddock. You can find him on bandcamp.com. Thank you to all of our current patrons, guests, and everyone else who helps make this dream a reality. We're so proud to be building this amazing community with all of you. If you love this podcast, please consider sharing with a friend, leaving a review on iTunes, and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash reach the stars. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the videos of these conversations. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, do something cool and tell us about it.